would a deer have gone splat in this situation? Oh my in in Nevada, God. we bring on Andre versus the state of Nevada. Was he more negligent than a deer? Than a deer? <laughs> I don't know, man. Would would the would the deer have gotten in this balloon or not? That's the real question. Would someone have shot at this balloon thinking it was a bear? Who knows? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unbelievable, the podcast where I, gambling degenerate scumbag Kurt Danner, tell my friend, self-trained balloon expert Luis Mejia, two unbelievable stories from history, one of them true, one of them false. And it's up to me to figure out which is which. Luis, today, as usual, I have two stories for you, but before we jump into that, do you have a little fast fact for me that perhaps is true perchance may be false yeah so we can calibrate our truth false sensing abilities herbie mayhaps but i do indeed have a have a, a real quick fun fact for you kurt or, or a little guessing game for you so we'll start you know how mm. i love my etymologies right mm-hmm. so we're going to, to go through a true or false situation so kurt true or false back during napoleon's exploration of Egypt, as he was traveling around and doing all his fun little Egyptian investigation, one of his officers comes up to him and offers him bread, and he offered him rye bread, which at the time was not terribly well known to the French, but it was very common in that part of the world, namely Egypt. When this rye bread was given to Napoleon, he took a bite of it, hated it, and threw it out, saying, this bread is for my horse, is for Nicole, which was the name of his horse. It is said that he threw it out and never ate that bread before. Now, if we translate this bread is for Nicole into French, because as we may or may not know, Napoleon spoke French, you know, Mr. Mm -hmm. uh, Bonaparte. Word on the street is. Word on the street is that Napoleon Bonaparte was a French person, and he would have said this phrase in French. So bread for Nicole is translated into French as pain pour Nicole. So that's what he is alleged to be said. And when people heard this story, they started translating it as pumpernickel and so pumpernickel bread is just rye bread but it was because of this etymology that was invented by napoleon bonaparte because he didn't like rye bread when he tried it during his (laughs) travels through egypt now kurt is that true or is that fake wow First of all, I I just want to say, I feel like Napoleon would be like, you know, taking very good care of his horse. And so like, if it was bad food, you know, mm. he wouldn't want to give it to the horse either. But also like, you know, maybe he just said it jokingly. I am leaning towards, I think, false because I think it's very interesting how a lot of legends and kind of mythology about the creation of things or the stereotypes of different places are related to food. Interestingly, it's like one of the, mm-hmm. the places where people really pick like, this is my team that's got it right and the other team has definitely got it wrong so just because we have some bread in the mix and it's like bread that definitely some people like and other people are like ooh, give it to the horse mm-hmm. i am going with false well kurt your idea of taking care of the horse was indeed correct so that is a that is what we in the business call a folk etymology that is not real yes protect nicole although pain poor nicole does 
mean bread for Nicole. It's it, it really is not the meaning of pumpernickel. Frankly, I didn't do my, my due diligence and check what pumpernickel means, but it's not that. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> well, nonetheless, I have two stories for you, Luis. And the first one of those. So you may know that recently I spent a little bit of time in the Western United States on a family reunion. I was out in yeah. the desert of Nevada and I learned a little bit of local history that I would love to share with you if with oh, your permission. My favorite type of history. Hell yes. I'm ready. So first I have to go back and tell you that in 1890, Idaho became the 43rd state admitted to the union. So in 1890, Idaho became a state and in their state constitution, they outlawed all forms of gambling except for lotteries. So pretty much all gambling is illegal in Idaho, but not to worry if you are a new citizen of Idaho because the lawless land of Nevada is right next door and they are just bursting at the seams with gambling. Oh, yes. So pretty much immediately, this businessman in Nevada named Peter Vincent Piersanti, uh, his nickname was Cactus Pete, which I think that, is just that's amazing. Fantastic. Fantastic. He went and founded this unincorporated town named Jackpot on the Nevada side of the Idaho-Nevada border, and he opened a casino in the town called the Cactus Jackpot. So lots of people in Idaho would like to gamble. Shocking, I know. And so the town does pretty good business at the casino and quickly other businesses spring up, including a saloon, a general store and a hotel. However, there's no permanent residences built in Jackpot until 1902. And this is because in the beginning, Nevada banks would refuse to approve building loans for residences because they weren't sure that the town was going to last since it's kind of like a town that's only supported by the Idaho gambling addiction, right? Uh, They're yeah, like, what know. if we give you money to build a house? And by the time you're done building the house, the town no longer exist. Hate it when that happens. Yeah, that's tough. But so in the early days of Jackpot, the town was eerily empty at night because all of the people who ran the stores would go home to other towns that they lived in. So it would be only the Idaho tourists who were drinking and gambling at the casino or saloon, a handful of employees, and a creature known as Black Winnie. Now, <laughs> Black Winnie was a black Great Dane belonging to the general store owner, a man named John Ackerman. And Black Winnie is definitely what you would call an outdoor dog. So John would leave Winnie yeah. to roam the town when he goes home at night to his nearby town of Caliente, Nevada. Uh -huh. Black Winnie was said to measure 32 inches at the shoulder and 40 inches long. Uh, in metric, that's 86 centimeters to the shoulder and 102 centimeters long. Oh my. And he was said to be, quote, lousy with fleas and always having a hungry look in his eye. Though clumsy and cretinous, he moved with a slow deliberance that seemed to grant him the qualities of a shadow creeping through jackpot. You're just describing me at like 2 a.m. after a night of drinking, Kurt. I know, exactly. Like Black Winnie is really, <laughs> uh, you know, verging on some cryptid territory here. And this is like yeah, a yeah, massive really. dog, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of like lumbering around the town of jackpot. So it becomes a little bit of an unofficial rite of passage for drunk tourists who are kind of stumbling outside to relieve themselves or crossing between the saloon and casino to see Black Winnie at night and be startled. You know, if you imagine this is yeah. kind of like a deserted town and you're just stumbling right. out of the casino drunk and you see this massive black creature lumbering around through the shadows. <laughs> but despite being a little bit of nightmare fuel, Black Winnie becomes very beloved by the tourists and the townspeople. Uh, they really fall in love with the dog. So in 1904, Peter Piersanti, this is again our, our guy, Cactus Pete. Cactus Pete. Cactus Pete, you know, you gotta love him. He bestowed a plaque on John 
John Ackerman's general store, naming Black Winnie the official mayor of Jackpot, elected by unanimous oh, vote. Yes, yes. I said earlier that Jackpot is unincorporated. This means that the town has no ruling body or city council. Uh, this is because, you know, uh, Cactus Pete wanted to set the town up really quickly because he just really wants a casino there. So they don't have any sort of government structure for the town. So they don't have a real mayor. This is how they can say that Black Winnie is the unofficial official mayor of Jackpot. Nice. Now we come to August 2nd, 1906. Black Winnie was not seen in the morning when John Ackerman filled up his bowl when he opened the general store. And as the day went on, on August 2nd, more and more residents started to take note of Black Winnie's absence and worry began to grow throughout the town. People were particularly worried because August 1906 was a very hot month. They're also worried because, you know, this is still in the desert of Nevada. So there are coyotes and snakes out there. It's very likely that Black Winnie could have been attacked by one of these. So in the evening, John Ackerman and a few other locals search for Black Winnie, but they are unable to find him. The following day, Black Winnie is still nowhere to be seen. John Ackerman again spends the day searching. And meanwhile, a local man named Gerald Miffler rode to a nearby town to see if perhaps Black Winnie had wandered over to one of them, but no one has seen Black Winnie there either. And, you know, it seems like this dog is kind of hard to miss, so they probably would know if they had seen him. What what was his name? John Miffler, you said? Gerald Miffler. Gerald Miffler? I hardly know her. Anyway, go on. Gerald Miffler? Who is she? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Anyway, go on. What what happened to Black Winnie, please? Yes, so... Just before nightfall, a woman was passing by a local inn when she heard a strange noise coming from beneath the foundation, and looking through the broken boards, she saw Black Winnie, a large pile of black fur, asleep and snoring. Nice. So, it is not known if Black Winnie was sleeping underneath this inn the whole time, or simply just wasn't seen by anyone when he wasn't sleeping, but either way, the dog was eventually fine. Black Winnie passed away the following year in 1907, and in 1908, local businesses raised money to purchase a statue of Black Winnie with a plaque declaring him, quote, the first and last mayor of Jackpot. And they placed the statue in front of the Cactus Jackpot Casino. Incredible. Now, we skip to 1972. All right, big skip. The population of Jackpot by 1972 had grown to about 6,000. So it's, it's a much larger town. Big bustling city of 6,000. <laughs> Big bustling. Hey, you know what, Luis? Some of us are from from towns of 150. Okay, so 6,000 is like that's a lot of people to keep track of. You know, they have like at least four stoplights, which is just insane. It's a full metropolis. (laughs) They've got they've got streets that are bigger than a single block. Oh my god. The jungle. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) So gambling is still mostly illegal in Idaho. They kind of loosened up on it a little bit, but basically all the fun types of gambling are still illegal. So people are still coming to Jackpot a lot to get their fix. Also, the entire state of Nevada has grown in population from the U.S. military investment post-World War II, after World War II, and kind of since then, the U.S. military purchased a lot of land in Nevada to open up various facilities, the most notable, of course, being Area 51. So there's just a lot of new structures being built, new jobs being created, and this has caused an influx in population. Mm-hmm. Another thing caused by this is that the wildlife patterns have shifted because wildlife has been displaced and the state is changing uh, right. just entirely. So in the beginning, this was actually quite good for the bear population because it basically ended up funneling all of their food source to them. So the bears for like a little while were just like, wow, this is just like the greatest month of our lives for some reason. <laughs> that's such a that's such a good non sequitur. We're talking about the growth of this town and just saying, 
Anyway, bears were greatly impacted by this. Anyway, bears <laughs> discovered Uber Eats for a second. <laughs> <laughs> they just had their food delivered to them on a daily basis. Right, yeah. So in this time period, for a little while, the bear population actually was growing and flourishing. No. But then it grew so large that it bumped up against the now growing human population in Nevada. And so then now again, the bear population is kind of lumped in with all the other wildlife that is losing their habitat. The bears are, are developing a strong gambling addiction too it's getting really dire yeah the bears the in the bear states they have pretty much all forms of gambling illegal so they're really in a bad way at this point you know casino casino owners out here are today like looking for you know the whale they want to snag the whale back in the day mm -hmm. you're trying to snag the bear snag you know, the bear a whole, mm -hmm. whole different game right but in 1970s northern nevada because of this conflict of habitat suffered from frequent wild bears looking through trash or killing mm -hmm. animals and livestock so it was not an uncommon occurrence to see a bear if you lived in a small town in nevada but one town was lucky enough to be spared from this because one town spared? had a man who wasn't going to take this lying down and that town louise was jackpot and that man who wasn't going to take this lying down was henry tibble oh Oh, I thought you were going to say Cactus Pete. <laughs> Got excited for a second. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> <He's> unfortunately. <back. laughs> but Henry Tibble, who was usually just referred to as Tibble, he was 22 years old, recently home from Vietnam, and he thinks to himself, this bear problem is really annoying. It's also probably hurting tourism. I think I could probably fix this. So Tibble gets together some friends <laughs> and local townspeople to make basically an anti-bear citizen militia. Nice. So they're going to watch various high-risk areas in Jackpot during the night in shifts, and they would stay on rooftops or balconies or in trees. If they see a bear, they're supposed to yell at it, throw a rock or whatever object they have. And then if the bear still doesn't leave and they have a gun with them, then just shoot the bear. And this worked extremely well, actually. Jackpot quickly became one of the only towns in northern Nevada to be mostly bear-free. <laughs> mostly bear-free? You know. <laughs> Put that on the sign on the outside of the town. Welcome to Jackpot, Nevada. Mostly bear-free since 1972. The only bear-free town in Nevada with an asterisk and then like in little tiny letters 99.999% bear free <laughs> <laughs> yeah bear down but either way when we get to October 3rd 1972 uh, this man named Martin Short is on quote unquote guard duty he sees a bear Martin Short oh my god the, the stars are all out <laughs> no like the actor Martin Short freaking Jack Frost Actor Martin Short sees a bear going through the garbage cans of a neighboring house, <laughs> except he does not actually see a bear. What he actually sees is 32-year-old Bob Lander drunkenly trying to climb in the window of the Lewis residence. But to Martin, in the dark and from across the street, this looks like a bear. So Martin throws a rock and several tin cans. He <laughs> yells a warning, but the drunken Bob Lander does not react to any of this. Oh, and classic. so Martin shoots him twice with a 30-30 Winchester rifle. Bob is dead within minutes, basically before Martin can even get over to him to realize what he's done and you may be wondering Luis why was Bob Lander drunkenly trying to get in this window so Bob Lander did live a couple blocks away it's possible that he thought that it was his own house although that would seem a bit odd it is uh, possible that he was having an affair with Miss Lewis although there's not really any evidence for this maybe it was just a good old-fashioned breaking and 
entering, but either way, the man is dead. And so Martin Short goes to trial. (laughs) At Martin Short's trial, Martin's attorney argued that Bob Lander was acting negligently. He pointed out that if Martin had been legally hunting an animal such as elk or deer, he could have still ended up in the same situation and accidentally shot Bob Lander through no fault of his own. Bro, he was part of the bear militia. Cut him some slack. This man, this man's hunting down for bears. He's solving the population. He's trying to bring down the bear population from mostly to fully free of bears and of in jackpot come on he's like do you have any idea the work he's out there doing on the front lines fighting the bears every day laying down his own life for your freedom this other man was shot down because he was caught in the crossfire of some other man's call of duty or some other man's line of duty like this is i don't know man i I feel like you're interfering with with the diligent honest work of a bear hunter (laughs) my thought well it seems that the jury may have partially agreed with you because martin was acquitted of manslaughter but sentenced to five years for criminal negligence. But the bigger issue here, or I guess bigger repercussion, is that this unintentionally established guidelines of what the law considered to be personal liability in Nevada. Okay. So to put this simply, because of the way that this case was ruled on, cases in Nevada that came after this where people or corporations were being sued for wrongful death, attorneys would refer to this unofficial thing called the Lander's Limit. This means that you have to be at least reasonably smarter than a deer to not be personally liable. So if you were killed in a wrongful death situation, like you were sucked into Nestle's meat grinder or something, and Nestle is like, look, a deer would have avoided this because they would have seen this and this. Then in Nevada at this point in time, that would be grounds to kind of measure that you were acting negligent and so maybe got yourself into this situation. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it is kind of like a rule of thumb that was used in Nevada's legal system. I feel like I've made decisions in my life where you could either say he was smarter than a deer and also he didn't have the common sense of a deer. So I think that this is not a hard set rule because the situations may vary, you know? I don't know, man. Are you feeling like a deer today or not? It really depends on the day. Here's, You know, I hear what you're saying, Luis, but I I also want to add this. As someone who grew up around deer, I think that maybe you have an idea of how dumb you think deer are. And then there's, there's kind of another level. Like it maybe is, you know, some amount of community effort to keep the deer from not throwing themselves in front of cars constantly. So I've lived with you and I've lived with deer and I, I will not deny that I have seen you do some very foolish things, but I've gone deer mode. I don't know. The deer, the deer bar is pretty low. That's all I'm saying. So mm. maybe, maybe this worked in Nevada because, you know, as long as all, everyone in their legal system has met some deer and they're like, this yeah. is how dumb a deer really is. This works. This worked in Nevada because I didn't live there. Yeah, yeah exactly. This, this, <laughs> this mostly worked because I was never subjected to it. Yeah. But yeah. either way, it's pretty wild to consider, you know, some juries or judges or attorneys in their head considering would a deer have gotten into this accident? <laughs> Um, yeah, I love that. That's nice. Now we're going to skip to 2019. Oh my God. And we have a new character, a man named Chano Peterson. He's 24 years old, living in Reno, Nevada. And Chano Peterson has an idea for the next big thing. And Luis, get ready because this is going to knock your socks off, okay? Cryptocurrency. Oh, my. But you can use it in casinos. Oh, 
boom time. Okay. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. I will say, you know, just my own opinion, this is maybe not a hugely terrible idea. Either way, Chano is originally from Jackpot, and so he uses some town history as inspiration, and after a year of work, he develops Wincoin. This is no, named sure. after... Name deer coin. No, it's named after Black Winnie. Oh. The logo for yeah. it is a large black dog holding a sack with Wincoin currency logo on it. Uh, the currency logo okay. is a W with a horizontal slash. And starting in 2019, Chano began selling Wincoin to friends and family, as well as promoting the currency on Reddit and Facebook. Did you have to be smarter than a deer to purchase this crypto? No, anyone anyone can get it. It's it's uh, no, this this right. you know. There's no prejudice, no antiquated laws in this crypto. There's no there's no okay? la Landers limit applied to to the trading of no crypto? no Landers limit on Wincoin. All right, interesting. We're Landers limitless, baby. Look out. <laughs> Now, by 2020, Wincoin began attracting quite a bit more attention because Chano started announcing some upcoming partnerships with casinos in Reno and Las Vegas. So this is, you know, kind of the big deal because without the partnerships with casinos, it's just like a random cryptocurrency, but it's a whole nother thing if you can gamble with it, right? Now, this is looking very good. However, in December 2020, the price of Wincoin suddenly began to plummet. And this is because Chano Peterson began selling off the reserve of Wincoin. So with cryptocurrencies, uh, sometimes, you have like a reserve that is guaranteed to not be sold off and this guarantees the price and stability. Channel Peterson sold this off anyway and this is most likely because he had almost completely fabricated the casino's interest in Wincoin and was seeming to run out of ideas and just wanted to cash out. I'm but the bigger problem for him here is right that on. this is fraud because you can't do this and so the people who lost money in Wincoin joined to file a lawsuit against Peterson. So on June 9th 2021, Channel Peterson was supposed to appear in court. However, he failed to appear in court. Then at his residence in Reno, it was very clear that he had fled when the police arrived, and so a warrant was put out for his arrest. However, he was not seen until a week later on June 15th, when Chano Peterson stumbled into a Reno police station, delirious either from drugs or heat stroke. He was wearing only a pair of boxers and covered head to toe in sunburn, <sighs> and he stumbled in and declared, quote, I wondered and I thirsted, and when I saw I did not understand. Now I understand but I can no longer see. <laughs> I'm sorry, Reno. <laughs> then collapsed on the floor. <laughs> oh, hell yes. Went out in style. What a way to go out. So then after being taken to a hospital, Chano Peterson told police he had gone camping on June 8th, but couldn't remember the events of the past days. And this could be caused by the severe heat stroke or by drugs he may have taken, or it could be just him lying because he's aware that he failed to appear in court. Or just the mental strain that comes from living in Reno, Nevada. Just <laughs> who knows? Yeah, just the just the mental distress of having a, a vision quest where you come to terms with your own existence and place in the universe while existing in Reno, Nevada. Yeah, yeah. the existential despair of the U.S. Southwest. Yeah. So based on all of that and the many uh, fraudulent actions Channel Peterson had taken, he was ordered to pay $140,000 in damages and sentenced to 200 hours of community service. So Luis, if you happen to find yourself at the tail end of a drunk bender, as you may be one mm -hmm. to do, stumbling out of the casino into the cool desert air of Jackpot, Nevada, yeah. be sure to say hi to Black Winnie, keep a lookout for bears or even worse, neighborhood bear watch. And if you see any any cryptocurrency founders call the Reno police. My God, that, that it's a lot of dangers that, that <laughs> presents in the in the border of, of what, what is it Idaho and uh, on on the Idaho Nevada border. Once again, the jungle. 
truly the jungle. Yeah, seriously. Upton Sinclair is shaking in his grave. This is the society that Upton Sinclair was too terrified to write yeah. about. No, it's 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 <laughs> uh, it seems like there's no no rules of the land there. It's just the the land gifts, the land takes, and we're all just lucky enough to be around to partake in some of it. Upton Sinclair stumbled out of the cactus jackpot to relieve himself in the bushes and took one look at Black Winnie and was like, "Okay, no way. Time to write about the meatpacking industry." Act- actually, Upton Sinclair was uh, declared missing for a couple days and then found under the floorboards of his local saloon also. <laughs> and wait, so well, any follow-up on the on, on the Wincoin? No, Wincoin is, is dead and gone. <laughs> there's, nah, there's not going to be any Wincoin. Right. Although, you know, I will say, I think that there's some merit to the idea of like a cryptocurrency that you can gamble with, except I feel mm-hmm. like if you gave that idea to casinos, they would be like, okay, cool. So we're just going to do that ourselves because it, you're basically just like digitizing posts poker chips, right? So the casino is not going to like outsource that to somebody else. But I think that it is when I was reading that I was like, it is kind of weird to think about maybe in the future there at some point will be no more poker chips because maybe it'll be like how companies discover that if you use a credit card, it doesn't feel as much like you're losing money as when you pay with physical cash. And so they try to make mm-hmm. it easier to pay by credit card. I don't know. So that was interesting. I was like, there, there is some some merit to this idea of like, ooh, gambling, but easier. Yeah. And then once you've lost all your money you might step outside and get shot by a bear hunter yeah perfect yeah well i i would say i mean if i tried this idea i would probably not run from the law and become delirious from drugs or heat stroke in the desert probably you not. say that Although, you say that now kurt from your place of privilege but you will never know if you were not living in jackpot Come i was on. gonna say like you know maybe i really just don't understand the business world of reno nevada honestly <laughs> who does frankly not even renoans <laughs> Luis, let's talk about the balloon. Can we talk about the balloon? I have been dying to talk to you about the balloon. Earlier this year, yeah. every day, every day we talk about the balloon. Earlier this every year- Every day I go, I go to bed saddened that I, we didn't talk about the balloon. <laughs> Earlier this year, I can't believe it actually was this year because it feels so long ago, but it was the beginning of this year. You may recall that there was quite a bit of panic and uh, a lot of good memes generated about a Chinese spy balloon that passed over the United States. Do you you recall this event? Of course I do. People in Mexico were were saying, who cares? (laughs) We see balloons (laughs) all the time. Well, either way, this was a just a really, really odd time period for sure. And one of the odder details I thought to come out of this was that this spy balloon, as well as other spy balloons that exist out there apparently, are usually uncontrolled. Sometimes they have one or two propellers, but for the most part, they just ride wind currents. So when you send the balloon out, you can try to like predict and navigate the wind currents because they typically take a path, but there's like a certain amount of luck involved in it. So to a certain extent, like somebody released that balloon and just was like kind of hoping it went to the right place prayed and said here goes nothing exactly now what if i told you that this is not a new idea this has been tried balloons? before Generally? <laughs> yeah <laughs> have you ever heard, heard of balloons good. get ready <laughs> no no man went to the circus yesterday they brought out some balloons to sell to the kids fine lost fine. my mind fine you lost wanna... my mind i didn't know what they was i was like oh what what is this you want to be globe. Pe- pedantic little circus balloon boy fine i'll i'll, I'll specify <laughs> The idea of someone saying, what if I release a balloon and the wind just blows it right where I want it to go? 
Wouldn't that be oh, neato? Okay. And I put a yeah. bunch of money into that. That idea might not be a new idea. So let's go back to the 19th century. The 19th century is sometimes called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And this is because during the 19th century, there was quite a bit of groundbreaking exploration into Antarctica and also continued Ice exploration breaking. into the Arctic. Icebreaking, groundbreaking, whatever's in the way, they'll break it, Luis. Okay. <laughs> Goddamn right. They will we don't, we don't know what's down there, but when we find it, Ka-chow, you know? Yeah, exactly. We're going to strike down with the might of a thousand suns. Now, one one uh, country that did not participate in much breaking, they were, were largely absent from the exploration efforts, was Sweden. And to be honest, this is pretty embarrassing for Sweden because they have a long history of exploration, even going like all the way back to the Vikings. Like, you know, they have a history of exploration longer than their country. They're also, of course, very equipped for cold temperatures since they are a cold country. Mm-hmm. And they're literally near the Arctic Circle. So there is no real good excuse for Sweden not to be involved in this, right? I mean, and you know how they love their pre-assembled furniture and buildings. I mean, even more than that, it's just amazing that like some Swedish guy never said like, I'm just going to ski to the North Pole. Like, why not? It'd be fun. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah it's like Sarah Palin opened their window. It's like, oh, the North Pole's my backyard. Oh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. It's not geographically correct, but it might be personally <laughs> correct to Sarah Palin. <laughs> Emotionally correct, emo- right? Vibes? Yeah. Checks. <laughs> yeah, right. As I was saying, there was one Swedish man who shared this sentiment about that it's a little bit embarrassing. Sweden's not involved in this, and he wanted to change that. This man was Solomon August Andre, and Andre was a 38-year-old engineer working at a patent office in Stockholm. He was also an experienced balloonist, and he had this idea of building a large hydrogen-filled balloon that would ride wind currents north out of Sweden, across the Arctic Sea, over the North Pole, and then landing in either Alaska or Russia. So basically, his idea is the balloon could take off from Sweden and get blown north over the top of the globe, all the way over, and then down the other side. Foolproof. Foolproof. He felt so Mm -hmm. strongly about this that in 1893, Andre purchased a personal balloon called the Svea to test fly. He made a total of nine test flights starting from either Stockholm or Gothenburg, and in total he flew 1,500 kilometers or 930 miles. The results that he observed mostly were that Sweden has these strong westerly winds that would tend to blow the balloon east out to the Baltic Sea and or crash the balloon against the water pretty violently. <laughs> one, one or the other? <laughs> no, it's an and or. Sometimes you get both. You get the, the eastern blowing and then, then you skip yeah. on the water a little bit. One flight he was actually blown so so far east that he reached Finland on the other side of the Baltic Sea. So to improve steering, Andre tested using drag ropes. And uh, drag ropes are exactly what they sound like. They're ropes that drag on the ground behind a balloon kind of hanging out of the basket. And they're intended to slow the balloon down. Then he also would attach sails to the balloon to try to steer and control it. So the sails can only steer the balloon if the balloon is going slower than the wind. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of a two-part thing that, that the drag ropes will slow the balloon down and then the sails will turn it. The tests go well and Andre announced that with the use of his drag ropes, he was able to turn the balloon 10 degrees in either direction at will. There's an interesting little note on this number that modern experts consider this number to be so ridiculous that it's pretty much impossible. Also, drag ropes are known to have a tendency to snag on trees and break off and just cause a lot of issues, but no one in 1895 Sweden knows this. And as I said, Sweden is looking for a way to contribute to Arctic exploration. It seems Andre was very convincing. For one, he says that hydrogen balloons large enough to carry three scientists and all of their 
their equipment have already been made in France. He also says the Arctic summer weather is uniquely well suited for ballooning and the midnight sun would allow round the clock observation. Luis, do you know what the midnight sun is? Pretty sure that at higher latitudes or some of the highest latitudes, the sun really doesn't set, right, over the summertime? Yeah. So it just stays sunlight throughout the entire day? Like maybe it gets a little less bright, but I mean, the sun never goes down the horizon. Yeah, at certain times of the year in the Arctic Circle, there will be sunlight 24 hours a day. So Andre is saying, you know, we would always be able to be doing observations because we'd always have light. I will never sleep. Exactly. And then <laughs> as for steering, Andre believes that using his drag ropes, he can routinely achieve a 27 degree turn. So forget 10, baby. We're shooting for the moon. 27. We're shooting for the left. To the left is what he's shooting for. <laughs> We're shooting for 27 degrees left yeah, of the yeah, moon, right. baby. <laughs> forget the moon, man. <laughs> So this is very convincing, and the Royal Swedish Academy gave Andre his estimated budget of 130,000 kroner. This would be 1 million US dollars in today's money. Andre also received donations from King Oscar II, who was the king of Sweden at the time, and Alfred Nobel, who was the founder of the Nobel Prize. So now with the funding secured, it is full speed ahead, or rather full speed whichever way the wind happens to be blowing. Mm -hmm. And during the planning and construction of the project, whenever issues would come up, this is what kind of always would happen. Andre is Sweden's first major balloonist, so no one can really second guess his calculations or designs. Uh, <laughs> now, outside of Sweden, experts in both Germany and France expressed some concerns about Andre's methods. Uh, most of the issues were related to the balloon and the needs that would be placed on it. The balloon was specially ordered from Paris. It was a three-layer varnished silk balloon. It was 20.5 meters or 67 feet in diameter, so quite a massive balloon. That's big. And it was named the Urlin, or Eagle. Now, one problem was figuring out how you're going to have three people sleeping in a balloon. You also have to carry enough scientific equipment, food, and provisions to last for at least 30 days. This is the minimum that they estimate that, that they'll need to make their journey. In total, this is about 6,000 pounds of weight. Oh uh, so this is one thing that they had to consider in the designs. Another problem is that hydrogen is extremely flammable, so the food can't be cooked in the basket of the balloon. So instead, they make this special stove that they can dangle 30 feet below the balloon while the food cooks and it even has this special little like side mirror on it that's angled so they can see if the flame is lit or not they actually tie it to the drag rope and with the friction that it causes on the ground it heats it up to a exactly. nice cookable level yeah. it's it's like lighting a match constantly going through the ground but that's just the way you cook your meatballs i guess well either way one way or another they figured out all these issues and so andre chose the crew andre himself is of course going to go. He also chooses Neil Gustav Ekholm, an Arctic meteorologist, to go with him. Uh, Ekholm had previously led a geophysical expedition that Andre was a part of. Andre also chooses Neil Strindberg, a student who was doing research in physics and chemistry. And Strindberg was also a photographer and inventor and had created a camera with a weatherproof case that the team planned to use to take pictures along the voyage. So, in 1896, Andre and his team traveled to the launch site on an island in Svalbard. They are extremely impressed by the newly constructed hydrogen plant that has been made to fill the balloon and the enormous balloon basket. In this balloon basket, there's an enclosed room beneath the deck for sleeping quarters. They have tons and tons of cargo on board, as I mentioned earlier, but this is even including things like 36 homing pigeons and, of course, <laughs> as promised, the custom-designed oven. So, this is really a massive, massive balloon basket. Tennis courts. 
bathrooms <laughs> with heated toilets. Indoor pool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now, mm-hmm. one big problem with their intended launch is that the wind was blowing south, and it would not oh. stop blowing south. Andre had calculated it with basically needing perfect wind conditions, so he needs the wind to blow north the whole time. It is doing the opposite of that, and so after the wind blew south continuously for six weeks, the team was forced to deflate the balloon and return home to Sweden. But while they were on Svalbard, after seeing the size of the basket, Niels Ekholm became very worried that the balloon was not going to be able to carry that size of a basket. So once the balloon was inflated, he monitored its hydrogen levels and its leakage, and he made an alarming discovery. He found that at the current rate it was leaking, the balloon would only be able to hold the basket for 17 days, which would not even be long enough to reach the North Pole. He tells these findings to Andre, but Andre disagrees with them and disregards them. Then during the boat ride, Ride home, Ekholm discovers that Andre had secretly been instructing the chief engineer to continuously top off the balloon with hydrogen, meaning that the calculations <laughs> actually are even worse, that 17 days is very optimistic. Oh, man. Once they returned home, Ekholm ultimately left the project. So after this failure to launch, interest in the project fell, and Andre considered abandoning the idea. However, largely with the help of another donation from Alfred Nobel at a crucial time, the project continued, and a second attempt was planned for 1987. Andre replaced Ekholm with 27-year-old engineer Nut Frankel, and in the summer of 1987, the team returned to Svalbard, and this time, the wind was blowing northwest, so we are good to go. The crew boards the balloon and takes off. At first, the balloon struggled to gain altitude, and as they're blown out to sea, the balloon begins to skip across the water dangerously, so the balloon crew begins throwing out sand weights in an attempt to gain altitude. One of the things that's standard to do on balloons is to bring a lot of sand for weight, so that if you need to gain altitude, you can throw it out. So they began Mm -hmm. frantically dumping out sand and any heavier gear that they thought they wouldn't need. Now, at the same time, many of the drag ropes that are attached to the balloon begin to twist as they're being dragged on the ground, slowly unscrewing them from the balloon. And in this simultaneous moment, the majority of the ropes unscrew and fall from the balloon. This is an estimated 530 kilos or 1,100 pounds of weight that falls from the balloon. And the crew dumps out 210 kilos or 460 pounds of sand over the side. So just in a split second, around 1500 pounds or 750 kilos was dropped from the balloon but in total in the first few minutes the eagle lost an estimated 700 kilos or 1600 pounds and went from being a cutting edge steerable aircraft to a loose balloon with a few ropes hanging off completely at the mercy of the wind and all of this will still in view of the launch site a loose balloon with a few ropes hanging off put that on my gravestone (laughs) Oh, man. And it's all still in view of the launch site then. So everyone can see the disaster that's happening. Yeah, everyone is is watching this play out, you know. But once they lose all this weight, now they suddenly have the opposite problem that they're extremely light. And so they're blown quickly up into the air. Without the weight, they climb to 700 meters or 2,300 feet. And now the increased pressure from the high altitude, because the balloon was never intended to go this high, the, the increased pressure causes the balloon to leak hydrogen even faster, which then causes the balloon to fall, so the crew frantically throws out more sand, causing the balloon to again rise too high, making it leak hydrogen faster, causing it to fall, so the crew throws out more sand on and on and on for 10 and a half hours. <laughs> After this 10 and a half hours, the balloon actually starts floating less freely and begins bumpy contact with the ground or scraping on trees or objects intermittently. And during this time of a little over two days, no one in the balloon sleeps. Finally, after a little over two days, the balloon comes to a stop somewhere on the ice around 800 kilometers or 500 miles northwest of Svalbard. The crew and the homing pigeons are unharmed. The landing actually is fairly gentle um, and the equipment is mostly undamaged. 
damaged. But, you know, this is a pretty bad situation. So let's talk about Luis. How prepared are they for this? They do have, as I said, all of their gear for the most part intact. They have guns, they have ammo, they have tents, sleds, homing pigeons, snowshoes, and even a disassembled boat. And one thing that Andre wisely did, so earlier I was talking about this extra sand that was brought for weight. Andre said, some of the sand, let's instead bring extra food. And if we need to dump it for weight, we'll do that. But if not, and we end up needing extra food, we'll just eat it. Smart. This ended up, of course, you know, hugely paying off. Mm -hmm. So because of these things, they had, you know, some things going for them. Now, other than that they were completely totally utterly unprepared this is because little to no preparation was given to things like fitness or planning or wilderness survival right or preparations because yeah. andre had anticipated that the trip would be fairly easy and he's just like all in on the optimism thing that there was really no consideration that things would go wrong so you know not only had they not like really planned this out well they hadn't even really considered this as a possibility i love that optimism that's great <laughs> I know. Uh, that, that's good I've, I've been trying to do stand-up paddle boarding lately and I, I never bring clothes that are meant really to get wet by ocean water. But I, it's because I, I, I tell myself every single time, I'm not going to fall. Please, I'm good at this. And without fail, I always do. <laughs> so I get it, man. I get it. You got to have some arrogance in your life. It's funny because I also think like, okay, then why did you bring a disassembled boat and snowshoes if you thought that nothing was going to go wrong? But I think there was was some back and forth of people who were outside the project or lower in the project saying, hey, you need these safety measures and Andre would resist them. But then some, you know, he's going to pick his battles some places. Ironically, one of them was that he wanted the drag ropes completely like fastened to the balloon and they wanted them mm -hmm. in this sort of screw situation so that they could be detached if they needed to. Because of these screws, this is what caused all the drag ropes to detach when they right. took off because they literally just like rolled until they unscrewed themselves. However, had Andre had his way, they may have just dragged the balloon down. So I'm not sure if who was right in this situation. Yeah. So the first thing that the men do uh, now crash landed is they set up a tent and take stock of their inventory and plan what to do for about a week. And, you know, this is a big question, what to do. Now, Luis, this is not the first time we have talked about some people being lost in an Arctic environment. I think that there's always kind of this funny maybe a little bit ironic thing that you know if you were just like suddenly stranded in the arctic you think oh this is such a complex situation i gotta sit and think and figure out what to do but the answer of what you ultimately have to do is quite simple do you do you want to say what it is do you have a guess here at what i'm getting at stay warm no i mean you just have to start walking oh right yeah if you have no method of transportation and you're in the middle of nowhere you think like oh what am i gonna do you just gotta start walking ultimately yeah you know where north is just head away from that yeah and so so this is what they do but first they need to decide where to walk to and the arctic ocean at this point is completely frozen so they're just going to walk across the frozen ocean there's a couple somewhat nearby supply caches that were buried in advance however instead of walking southwest towards the supply cache that was on one of svalbard's islands so back in the direction where they came where presumably a rescue party would be coming from mm -hmm. they instead decide to walk southeast towards a larger supply cache on cape floor now they falsely believe that it's the same distance to both of these supply caches because their maps are inaccurate they're actually walking to a much farther distance classic but either way that's the choice they make on july 22nd 1987 the team loaded up 180 kilos or 400 pounds of supplies and began the 700 kilometer or 450 mile 
mile walk to the supply cache. And this was far from easy going. Obviously, even on a sled, 400 pounds is going to be a massive amount to pull. And just because the Arctic Ocean is frozen doesn't necessarily mean that it's flat. They're dealing with like glacier terrain and having to go mm, up mm -hmm. over peaks and valleys. So it's really, really miserable. After a week of struggling to pull the sleds across the terrain, they realize that it's an impossible task and dump half of their weight. And this includes a good deal of their food. Uh, so after this, they began having to hunt for their food, killing seals and walruses and polar bears. By early August, the men estimated that they hadn't even walked one fourth of the distance and realized that they were not going to make it to the supply cache on Cape Floor. They decided to divert their course towards Svalbard. Ironically, their maps were so wrong that they were almost walking towards Svalbard already and now just kind of <laughs> angle slightly. Just veered off, yeah. Yeah, but despite this, their spirits are still high and they estimate that they can reach Svalbard in two months. So as they're walking now towards Svalbard, the ice begins to melt. The men are able to travel more often by boat instead of walking and they also have more animals present that they can hunt so there's a little bit more food. But despite this, travel is still extremely slow. By the end of September, they realize that they wouldn't be able to reach Svalbard before the winter and so they decided to set up a permanent shelter on an ice floe and basically just drift freely until the next spring when they'll start traveling again. They build a shelter and set up on this ice floe and exist for a few weeks taking pictures with the camera that still survived, recording the coordinates that the ice drifts to, hunting animals. But then after a few weeks the ice breaks apart and the men are forced to relocate to a nearby island. Again despite these setbacks, Andre records in his journal that morale is quite high. The men again begin walking. However, a few days later, on October 7th, Andre wrote in his journal that the men were happy to be sleeping on solid ground again, <laughs> and this is the last entry from any of the men. No. Now, back home, no one really knows what happened. I mentioned that they have the homing pigeons. Only one of the homing pigeons was ever found, and it's dated from two days after taking off when the balloon was actually still in the air, and it doesn't say anything about any of the mishaps. It just basically says that all is well, so there's not much information there. The men are assumed dead, and people move on with their lives uh, until three decades later in 1930 when a group of Norwegian hunters stumble upon the shack that was built by the men that became their final resting place. The shack looks largely untouched. Even a lot of the food is still there. They recover journals, the camera, and the three bodies. The bodies are returned to Sweden and quickly cremated. And whether Sweden realizes or not, when they cremated the bodies, they forever lost the answers to this question that uh, would intrigue a lot of scientists of what killed these men. Because as you will notice that there was food there, that means that they didn't starve and they presumably weren't killed by people because there's also quite a bit of scientific equipment. So nothing valuable is taken, no supplies were taken. So the first leading theory kind of in what killed them is that it may have been trichinosis. Um, trichinosis is a parasite from undercooked meat and the men were regularly eating undercooked seal and walrus meat. They also all frequently wrote in their journals about having indigestion, exhaustion, and foot pain. And these are all symptoms of trichinosis. However, they are also all symptoms of being lost in the Arctic and walking uh, on know, the ice. Some, some could say that they share they share a, a prognosis there. But trichinosis larvae were also found in a bear carcass near the shack, further giving evidence to this theory. However, there is one problem. Uh, trichinosis has a very low rate of death, so it's unlikely that they would have all died so closely together. There's a more updated theory that paints a slightly darker picture of their ending. So one of the only pieces of information that scientists have is that Niels Strindberg died first, and this is because his body was found wedged in a crevice nearby. Presumably this was done so that polar bears wouldn't eat him. Oh, God. Because Strindberg was found with tears in his clothing, it's theorized that the men may have been attacked by a polar bear. The polar bear would have killed Strindberg and wounded Frankel. Afterwards, Frankel and Andre would have buried Strindberg, then returned to the shack where Frankel died of his injuries. And Frankel's body
body was found inside the shack without shoes or mittens, implying that he was, you know, intending to be resting. Afterwards, Andre may have decided to join his team rather than remain alone in the Arctic, as his body was found sitting against a rock near the shack, surrounded by morphine bottles. Jesus. His journal was also found wrapped in a sweater, straw, and balloon silk to preserve it in case anyone ever found it. But in the end, no one knows what happens to this expedition because, as I said, the bodies were cremated and there's, you know, very little things that survive in the Arctic. There are actually quite a lot of uh, very amazing photographs taken from the weatherproof camera that survived and their journals provided a lot of the information about what their their last days and months were like. But ultimately, most of most of what happened in this story is uh, lost to history. You know, this is I, I, I was about to say something along the lines of, oh, man, that's a bummer of an ending. However, every single time there's a story about an Arctic expedition, it always ends like this. I think we hear more ill-fated stories about Arctic expeditions than we hear about successes. Yeah, it's kind of like, I, I like whenever somebody's like, oh, did you hear about this new superhero movie coming out? I'll be like, oh, I wonder if the villain's going to win. Right, <laughs> right. I, the know, the you... rom-com, like, oh, I wonder if they're going to get together at the end. <laughs> and this man that said, no, 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 you see all these ways that people are exploring the Arctic. How about I use a balloon? No one has done before. I'll be the first. He was like, hmm, you know what? No one's ever died like this before. Like you mentioned at the beginning, since he was the only one doing this, there was no one to prove him wrong. So who knows? Maybe this was a success. Maybe dying was the objective here. Who knows, Kurt? Who knows? It is odd to think about his motives, especially like when there's the the story about him telling the engineer to keep refilling the balloon with hydrogen, because at that point, he's very clearly aware of the problems, but he's also the one going up in the balloon. So it's difficult to say, is he, you know, naive or just doesn't care or I'm not sure. It's it's odd that, you know, at times you feel very endeared him because he's got this kind of like always trying to be the happy warrior no matter what. He keeps like writing in his journal, spirits are high despite the setbacks, blah, blah, blah. But it's weird. It's almost like there's two Andres. There's like the Andre that's like whose negligence is getting a bunch of people killed. And then there's also the guy who just wants to like do this project who's trying to stay happy about it. I mean, I don't know, Kurt. Maybe he was just a little airheaded about this whole thing. Whoa. And then, you know, this whole expedition just ballooned his ego to a point where he couldn't see past his faults, you know? I hate it here, dude. And he couldn't just wait for everything to blow over. <laughs> I hate it here. Pretty crazy. This sucks, dude. And you know what sound the ice would have made under his feet? Pop, pop. <sighs> anyway. What if, okay, alternate theory. What if, what if he had, like, a crippling addiction to hydrogen? Can you get high from inhaling, like, pure hydrogen? One one of the stipulations was that when they do this balloon, they're not going to be able to like inflate it and then move it to the launch site. So they got to build like a hydrogen plant on the island where they take it off from. So what if he was just like, Mm -hmm. I want my own supply. And then he's on the balloon, like, you know, sucking up the hydrogen. That's why they can't keep any. Yeah, everyone was everyone was uh, having a hypothesis of being a leak. No, the leak was this man. Why is the balloon leaking? Because Andre's mainlining it because he put a straw (laughs) on the top. (laughs) He put a straw and said, "Mm, yum. Um, hydrogen you look at if you go around to the back of the balloon there's like a really long iv tube like leading snaking across the island right into andre's vein nothing makes you feel more alive during a midnight sun than a nice healthy dose of pure nitrogen straight into the bloodstream at 6 a.m dude i'm kind of getting into it now now you think about like I'm, i'm like blasted on hydrogen underneath the midnight sun i don't know i mean that sounds like something that's gonna have bad repercussions isn't that a lana del rey song but yeah that's i was gonna say there's something there that's something (laughs) (laughs) all right Luis. well we have 
both ends of the temperature spectrum today. We got sunburned head to toe and stumbled into the Reno police station delirious as we have all done before. We've all been there. Don't deny We've it. We've got the... Don't deny it. No, never. I won't, really. <laughs> you won't catch me denying it. <laughs> and, then, and then we've, of course, got the other end of uh, the, the chilly temperatures. You know, we're literally living on an ice cube floating around in the Arctic Ocean. What do you, what do you think of, of those, those two stories, Luis? Of the twin cities of Svalbard and Reno, <laughs> you know, forever destined to be linked together in history. Two houses. <laughs> <laughs> Two families torn apart by years of strife. I love a good folk tale and I love good folk history. So I'm really glad that you brought up the Reno stuff because as we always mention how the Western United States was way wilder than we give it credit. Yeah, seriously. Up until not very long ago, there was still some wacky stuff going on here. And as we can see, even in, what was it, 2020, there was even some wild stuff going on over there. It's, it's a different, different culture. And, and I really appreciate all this, all this different folk, folk tales and, and folk history from that area. On the other hand, my God, Sweden and, and the whole Arctic exploration situation. I love the arrogance of countries and this desire to be the first mm. to explore one of the largest, the largest deserts in planet. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's yeah. this desire of, oh, I want to go where no one has been before for no other reason other than there's nothing there. Yeah, just to prove that I can. Yeah, and it's that that arrogance that we have as humans to do it. Why? Because I can. Because Norway's doing it already. That look makes us look bad. And there's no way that I'm going to be caught with Norway doing things better than me, <laughs> Sweden. And, you know, I find it really funny that that the Swedes brought over a pre-built boat, a prefab boat. So really keeping up with their future of Ikea furniture. Mm. I like that. Mm. The Swedes are always always thinking ahead. Not far ahead to to figure out their whole balloon debacle, but at least for the boat. That's true. There. That's true. And and speaking of the the thinking ahead, I you know, I want to ask you your opinion on something, Luis, cuz okay, uh, we established Andre did not plan to not be in the air, right? He did not plan to end mm -hmm. up on the ice. But once he got there, it seems like he had a, was a fairly good sport about it. You know, he's like, "Okay, let's like walk here and then we'll walk there and like we'll try stuff like yeah. like he he really went for it." Now, what I want to ask you is we we talked before about our our respect for inventors who have a crazy idea but are willing to go splat for their invention. Mm -hmm. IE a man who tried to invent an early prototype for a parachute and jumped off the Eiffel Tower intending to prove it worked only to prove it really did not work. Classic. As well as a previous story I told you about a man who tried a little bit of hang gliding to reach yeah. a mountaintop and also went splat for his efforts. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I, you know, Andre did not necessarily went splat. The landing was fairly graceful and I don't know if I would say he was willing to go splat, but I, I'm curious about, do you put him in that category? Was he, was Andre willing to go splat for his invention for the balloon? Cause he was, he was in the balloon, you know, he was like that bad boy's leaking cause I'm sucking it up, but I'll still go up in it. I mean, yeah, he, I feel like he just had too much trust in that technology mm. of the balloon technology, which probably at this point was not top of the line, but he he said, no, 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 you, you guys don't understand. I have faith in this. I have faith in, the, in only mm. the best of balloons imported from France. And I will be 
the balloon man. So he was not courageous in your mind. He was just an idiot. Yeah. He was not willing to go splat. He was just simply prone to go splat. Yeah. He he opened the door to the possibility of going splat and uh, did not hide away from that. Oh, ooh, now tell me, would a deer have gone splat in this situation? Oh, my in In Nevada, God. we bring on Andre versus the state of Nevada. Was he more negligent than a deer? Than a deer? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Would would the would the deer have gotten in this balloon or not? That's the real question. Would someone have shot at this balloon thinking it was a bear? Who knows? Man, that's I mean, those are those are the things that keep you up at night. Well, while you're pondering that, Luis, let me give you something else to ponder as we move on to our favorite, least favorite part of this podcast, mm-hmm. which of course is deliberation. deliberation. So Luis, as I was saying, I told you about the wonderful history of a little town in Nevada, complete with the legend of Black Winnie, Cactus Jack, and of course, a little bit of wind coin to round it off. And then I told you about, I mean, come on, you, you, I knew you were going to love this story because you're a big balloon guy, right? We got balloons, I, I, we got yeah, Arctic expeditions, we got a terribly dark ending where maybe they got mauled by a polar bear and Andre like went out, you know, with the, the team. Either way. What's not to love what's not to love you know we uh, it's, it's all it's all in there what do you got for me all right kurt well going back to the first story i i love folk folk stories and that that brought me a lot of joy but i'll get back to that in a second I'm, i want to talk a little bit about the the balloon one mm. it seems very much on track with this idea of exploration for the sake of exploration yeah that sounds about right however I, i'm having a little bit of trouble figure out this balloon situations because at the end of the day balloons were were all the rage in the the mid 1900 the mid 1800s however i i don't know if if they were just coming up late on the balloon craze or or what you know and secondly doesn't pressure go down the far the high farther up you go in the air and so balloons expand the farther up they go because of the lack of pressure farther up. So that's a detail that that, that kept me thinking. Mm. Then again, I don't know how hydrogen works. So I could be speaking out of my butt. <laughs> I don't know how hydrogen works and I don't plan on learning how it works. So, I just like to take this moment to remind everyone and then in the intro I said self-taught balloon expert my friend Luis Mejia and you are really living up to that right now. So b- bonus points for that. Kurt, we never specified what kind of balloons. I blow them and that's it. That's where my expertise ends. But uh, I cut my teeth in the blowing division. <laughs> I spent 40 years in the balloon division. Used to be my I've old seen beat. Quite some things. For my bum knee. I could never top that Henderson over there. He knew about them hydrogen balloons. I certainly couldn't. Mm. But anyway, that that's something that, that caught me off guard. And I, I feel like maybe all of these Arctic expeditions seem too ill-fated. But it, this one seemed like from the very beginning, this guy just did not take the precautions mm. uh, uh, necessary for an Arctic expedition. And especially, like we mentioned, they're Swedes. They know what the cold temperatures are like. They know what that right. environment is like. And it almost seemed like this guy was was underestimating his own home. I don't know. Well, you, you failed to understand that the wind is going to blow north for 30 days straight, Luis. <laughs> I failed to understand wind quite often also. Uh, the, you know, I, I'm pretty good at a lot of things, but there are, are certain deficiencies that I have in me. One of them is parking. The other one is making the, the appropriate equations in my head to pay mm. bills and separate the checks with my friends at restaurants. Mm. The third of them is hydrogen and the fourth one is air. So, wow. you know, and wind. So they're, they're, those are things that I'm pretty pretty deficient at. Four elements. <laughs> yeah, right. Four nations. 
Now, going back to the other story, mm. I found it really interesting that it just kind of ended and everything just happened. Yeah. And I'm leaning a little more towards that story because I feel like that's a lot of how history works. Mm. There's no clear cut beginning. There's no clear cut ending. Stuff happens and then we move on. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And I love that there was just a dog, <laughs> just a big, big dog some, somewhere in the desert. And then there were lots of bears. And then Martin Short killed a man <laughs> and then they they tested his negligence under the the lander's limit th yeah they, they 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 tested this this man's negligence based on deer like that's great mm. even going into the modern day with the with crypto man like that just again this man just did all this based on things from the past and then passed out and, and then collapsed that's it. <laughs> and then collapsed <laughs> and then that's the end of his story and that's, that's this isn't my body <laughs> this is in my body i'm losing it. I love that. I don't know. That, that there's just something about that lack of beginning and lack of ending mm -hmm. where like everything is sort of in this liminal space mm -hmm. where everything just kind of exists, which in a way, in my own poetic brain, makes it almost timeless and just set forth into eternity. Mm. I love that. <laughs> I, 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 I really do love that. And with that sense of timelessness and with that sense of joy that I get from that, I'm going to say that that's a true story, Kurt. The, the folk tales and, and the folk stories, they bring me a lot of joy. And uh, I'm basing my, my decision on whether or not something sparks joy locked in very cool very cool well Luis, let me ask you of of the three little schemes in that do you think you're most likely to be caught drunkenly startled by black winnie or accidentally shot drunkenly climbing into a window seen as a bear or deliriously stumbling into the police station after your cryptocurrency failed to be fair i see myself doing all three so <laughs> hat uh. trick baby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, that is lovely. But what is not lovely, Luis, is that that is, in fact, not the true story. I'm going to cry. I made that up. And it is true that Andre did, unfortunately, die in the Arctic from his what stupid, stupid balloon idea. What an absolute oh, man. buffoon. They, I mean, Come Sweden on. in that moment really was at the mercy of knowing being no one being able to say, like, I. everyone was just like, I don't think that's right, but I don't know enough to dispute it. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Good. Good that he died doing balloon stuff because that man belongs in the freaking circus for what a clown he was that, that is what um, was bound to happen because he actually before that had been like what if we got like a balloon that just floated across the atlantic so he was gonna die in a balloon sooner or later to be honest with you yeah, but maybe maybe serves him right i'm sorry i don't wish ill will on anyone but it's been like 150 years so like whatever i'm okay with that then. <laughs> yeah 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 uh, i'm okay with stomping a little bit on his on his grave yeah lightly grazing on it <laughs> So let me quickly tell you that it is true that I spent a little bit of time out West and uh, it is true that there was an unincorporated town founded by a businessman whose nickname was Cactus Pete nice. called Jackpot. But this was in the 1960s and that's basically where the truth of the story ends. So the rest of it was just, like I said, I had a little time out West in the desert. I will tell you in, in my own personal experience, one day I had to go out searching in the desert for this large black Great Dane for two hours, <laughs> only to later discover that he may have just been like like sleeping behind a shed somewhere. So wow. I, I lived I lived the search for Black Winnie. I'll tell you that. So that the spirit of the West is still alive to this day. The spirit of the West is still alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, aside from that, yeah. So is there any anything that, that, you know, it seems like you felt fairly confident that the balloon thing was not happening. So now that you know that that did happen, is there anything that you're like, really? Like what? I'm just, I, I think I, I laid it out all before. I'm just 
<laughs> man, the man's a bit of a fool, and I'm and and I don't know, Kurt. I I, I seriously, I'm at a loss of words right now for yeah. for freaking Andre. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think the last two big interesting notes are one huge props to my man Ekholm, who like you know went and actually looked at the data and was like, this is not safe. What he actually mm-hmm. told Andre was like, if you get another balloon like that works, I'll do it. And Andre like never got back to him about that, so he yeah. was just like, peace out. So there's that, and also I think that one of the most interesting parts about history is that the more you look into it, the more complicated it is. And to me, the most complicated detail of this story is that Andre knew about these problems that he, he was, he turned a blind eye to things like when he would get blown all the way over to Finland uh, on one occasion, he was like, no, that was just like not over the Baltic ocean. That was like a big lake I was over. So he had some amount of denial, but at the same time, it was his own life that he put on the line. And I think that makes him really complicated that just like the answers of what killed these men were lost, the answers of like, what was his motivation? What were his desires you know he was someone who got a unique opportunity to do either something amazing or something amazingly terrible but either way it's interesting to see like what propelled him to go through with that especially when there were moments where it could have fallen apart had good old alfred nobel or the king of sweden not stepped in king yeah (laughs) (laughs) thanks alfred nobel (laughs) and your name will forever be remembered for this nothing else yeah alfred nobel alfred nobel who famously felt so bad about the decisions in his life that he decided to change his name in the history books this is why this is why if i was if i was one of the main funders of the balloon disaster yeah i don't know yeah funding the balloon disaster inventing dynamite of (laughs) course he wants to give out nobel prizes to people that didn't do that but you know just on paper because people say like this it's like the arctic balloon disaster you know imagine somebody's like what's the new thing alfred nobel's news about oh the arctic balloon disaster you'd be like that sounds bad and stupid. Like, why yeah. did, was the balloon mm-hmm. there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Glad he cleared his name. Good for him. Andre? No, no. He'll still in shame. Yeah. And speaking of being still in shame. Ouch. We're up to, it's eight to four now, Luis, with me in the lead. So yeah. I can't keep saying the same thing every week. But as we all know, that is not ideal. No, However, no. despite despite that displeasure, I hope you enjoyed learning yet another amazing balloon story today. And I hope everyone at home enjoyed learning a little bit about balloons and the wild, <laughs> wild west. If you like the podcast, leave us a review. Tell your friends and family or whoever. I guess we're not picky about it. Do whatever you want. We'll also post pictures from the episode, such as the pictures taken from the Arctic balloon disaster with the weatherproof camera on our social medias. That is Instagram at UnbelievablePod and Twitter at UnbelievablePC. Twitter slash X. Oh, Twitter slash X. You're so right. I forgot. Let's yeah. let's just say we're on Instagram at UnbelievablePod and the artist formerly known as mm-hmm. Twitter at UnbelievablePC. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And remember, if you're going to take a balloon to the Arctic... I don't know. Just don't. Just uh, yeah, never mind. Yeah, I, I yeah. wanted. Look. No, you know what? Hang on. Stop the music. Cut it. 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 Look. Let's. Can we get real for a moment? Can we get real? Can yeah. We yeah. Get real? yeah. Let's hear it. I really want there to be a way that you can do more things with balloons. It'd be super cool to be like we floated over the North Pole. We dueled on balloons. You know, we joined the Mile High Club on a balloon. We trained a bear and an elephant to cage fight on a balloon. Barbecue. But all of these things are destined for disaster. And look, if you want to go throw your life in the meat grinder of balloon exploration and find out that it's a bad idea by all means be my guest because we love balloons on this podcast but it's just not gonna happen don't take a balloon to the north pole do not take a balloon to the north pole all right take us out baby see you bye